Hello, welcome to the first episode of News From Where We Are, the Further Field podcast. It's a cultural discussion podcast grounded in news from where we are. When the lockdown hits the UK a couple of weeks ago, we asked contributors and lurkers on Furfield's net behaviour email discussion list how they were doing. We received reports from every continent and this inspired us to create this podcast. Some of them have recorded their reports for us and we will be hearing from them in a minute. All of this reminded us that while we may be confined to our homes by the COVID-19 emergency, we still have access to thriving network cultures from around the world. So this podcast is a conversation with many voices to explore how the collaborative imaginative fieldwork of artists, techies and activists is informing how we organise good health and post-capitalist realities, working together and supporting others to do the same. This new podcast includes your news from where you are, interviews, reviews, readings to explore how people want to live in a globally connected world now. We plan to post a new issue on the second Friday of every month. So if you have something to share, please send short audio recordings up to three minutes to me, Mark Garrett, including your name, where you are and your news. Okay, we have five different audio submissions from the netbehaviour.org email list. Uh, with members all sharing their personal experience from their localities regarding the COVID-19 virus. First, we'll start with Takira, who is currently living in the UK, discussing necropolitics and the devastating effects of the crackdown on public information in Brazil by its president, Jair Bolsonaro. Then we have Edward Pico, the creator of the strange and hilarious Dr. Harry series, He talks about his own experience a day in a life as a doctor's general practice manager as the coronavirus arrives in the UK. After Pico, we have Helen Varley-Jameson, a cyber performance artist and co-founder of the longest-running cyber performance platform and festival Upstage, who tells us about online happenings, events, of virtual distancing while on lockdown in New Zealand. Also, we have Canada-based Rob Myers, artist, hacker and writer, who sends us his greetings from Viral Cascadia. And finally, French media art curator Isabel Arvers, who was celebrating the Arts and Games World Tour and then got stuck at the Togolese border as COVID-19 broke out informing us about her situation. Hi, I have moved to Liverpool about two months ago. But things in Brazil are very, very bad. The political virus, our neo-digital imperialism. Two days ago, Bolsonaro went to the television and made a speech. He said that people should come back to work that the economy cannot break. That is plain necropolitics. Yes, this is the state we are. At the suburbs, people just can't stop working. There is no food, there is no welfare state. Some groups are organizing staple basket products to the most vulnerable. The village, where my family currently lives in the northeast of Brazil, has closed down, but there 
have resisted a communitarian mindset. These are the places that are going to suffer less. But some favelas in Rio don't even have water at their homes. The mayors from the northeastern states are having meetings amongst themselves saying that they are not going to follow the president, that they can't go against their own population. Local organizing has been a key. Indigenous tribes in Maranhão are going back to isolation, back to the forests. The virus, even though it's just arriving in Brazil, I'm afraid to say it will have devastating effects. Even though UK have far more cases than in Brazil, I feel safer here. Take care, you all. Touch. 22nd of March. Actually, work hasn't been that bad. We've gone from mainly face-to-face -face consultations to what they call total triage which means that nobody gets to see the doctor without him telephoning them first, and we've done that within the space of a week. The nurse is still seeing people. You can't do things like blood tests and dressings over the telephone, but she has to wear the protective gear, face mask, gown and gloves, and change it once every few patients. And we've cancelled all the non-urgent stuff, like diabetic checks and asthma checks, the aim being to only have one or two people in the surgery at a time, not counting the staff. The local chemist has gone into meltdown. Everybody is panic ordering their medication all at once. I went past the chemist on Saturday morning and the people the queue of people trying to get their prescriptions was out of the door. Lots of people are jumping ship from the local chemist to online pharmacies like Pharmacy to You because the online pharmacies are set up to do home deliveries. But the elderly, who are the ones who really need home deliveries, because they're the ones who can least afford to catch the virus, are least likely to make this move, because they're the least techno-savvy section of society. There are other people who can help them out, though. Social prescribing, which is where we direct patients to put them in touch with helping hand agencies, has suddenly gone from being a peripheral thing to a front and centre option. Two things we're trying to get up and running are video consultations and remote working. We were given a laptop about a year ago by the health authority which works off a VPN link and the idea is that if you're at home and stick your smart card in it you can log into the clinical system at the surgery and see patient records and do electronic prescribing and stuff just as if you were there. This would be brilliant especially if David the doctor has to self-isolate at some point but still feels well enough to work. But the VPN licence has run out, so we contacted the IT department to get it renewed once the crisis started to get serious, about 10 days ago now, but of course they've been overwhelmed, so they haven't sorted it out for us yet. As regards video consultations, which would be really useful for things like people with rashes, we've managed to get these working via mobile phones, but it's very glitchy because the Wi-Fi at the surgery keeps going wrong. Either it doesn't work at all, or it works with no internet connection, which has been pretty much how it's been ever since we had Wi-Fi put in. 
the other option is to do video consultations on a desktop or laptop computer. There's a startup tech company called Nye, based in Oxford, which offers this for free. We got it up and running on David's desktop, which is equipped with a USB camera. But then the camera immediately went wrong. This is pretty much how things work in the NHS. If the technology was in place and reliable, we could do a whole lot more. The most frustrating thing for me and David, I think, is the sheer volume of updates. If I see one more email entitled COVID-19 urgent for immediate action, I'm going to do an act of violence. You physically can't keep up with all this stuff when the phone's constantly ringing and you've got a million other things to deal with. And the lack of testing is frustrating too. We've got a nurse who's been off for a week with coronavirus-style symptoms, but of course we don't know whether it really is the coronavirus or not. So if she comes back to work and then gets another sore throat, she'll have to self-isolate for another week. On the other hand, in some ways it's kind of exhilarating. Suddenly we've been given a licence to ignore all the bureaucratic crap we usually spend our time struggling with, and that's quite liberating. And the pace at which we've managed to reorganise our services, with a lot of cooperation from the patients, it has to be said, has been startling. On a personal level, my main concern has been shopping. I go to bed worrying about whether I'm going to be able to get any food in the shops the next day. I've done all right so far, but I normally don't get up to the co-op, which is our local supermarket, until after three o'clock. And by that time, there's virtually nothing on the shelves. So I've been having to dodge out of work and make special trips up there at about 9.30, once I've got somebody else to cover the front desk. The other thing is that my demented mum is in a care home a few miles from here and they've closed their doors to visitors. So instead of going to see her twice a week, all of a sudden I'm not seeing her at all, which is a big change to my routine. You do get very fed up with the stupidity of the public at times, especially where things like panic buying and panic ordering of prescriptions are concerned. You think to yourself, this is what we're like now. People have been brainwashed to be consumers, not citizens. They don't know how to act responsibly towards one another anymore. Then you come across people who are being really unselfish and helpful towards one another, and you realise that things are a lot more nuanced than that. And when I do get up to the co-op, everybody's giving everybody else elbow bumps and making jokes about the state of things, and you think to yourself, oh, well, at least there's one good thing about Britain. We do have a sense of humour. You find yourself chatting to strangers, and you feel closer to the people who you already know because there's a sense of all being in it together. Then something really annoying happens, or you have to deal with somebody who's being completely self-centred and unreasonable, and you're back to wanting to throttle everybody again. Kira, I'm Helen Valley Jamison, and I'm in lockdown in Dunedin, Aotearoa, New Zealand. We've been at Level 4 lockdown for two weeks, staying at home, only essential services operating. We currently have 1,160 confirmed cases of COVID-19, with 12 in hospital, 241 recovered, and one death. The number of new cases decreased today for the first time since we began the lockdown. Lockdown is not difficult for me. I'm in an ideal place with everything I need, and I was already having a kind of sabbatical, so I haven't lost any work. Yet. For more than 20 years, I've been developing cyberformance, live online performance, and it's been a pretty quiet niche, populated by experimental artists, researchers, and a few curious public. Now, it's as if a rampaging group of noisy and enthusiastic tourists has suddenly burst in and taken over. Wonderful things are happening all over the internet. We've had a pandemic party in Upstage, 
and new performances are in development. It's exciting, but also overwhelming. I have to practice some virtual distancing to stay sane. There is suffering and hardship, stress and uncertainty, but I'm optimistic about the post-pandemic future. Massive changes can be made very quickly when there is the political will. Cleaner air, cleaner water, the increase of birdsong thanks to the quietening of our cities, all this demonstrates that we can easily make improvements if we want to. The pandemic is opening our eyes to what we really need and value and what is superfluous and superficial. My hope is that we can use this time to reprioritise what is important in our lives and begin to make the necessary changes towards holistic coexistence as part of a healthy ecosystem. Greetings from viral Cascadia. Vancouver is on two levels of state of emergency. BC has declared one and the city has also declared one. We just need Canada to declare one to get to level three. We have Canada's most deprived district here, the downtown east side, with US-style tent cities and street sleeping. These are not people who are able to stay at home. We also have people who, whether due to idiots libertarianism, economic or theological delusions of invulnerability, or just not being online enough, are going ahead with gatherings of all kinds. These are not people who are willing to stay at home. I hope the city gets its act together to help and hinder these groups respectively. And I hope that the cultural politics around wearing masks here evaporate. Serena and I both work at home anyway, so it hasn't been too much of a transition for us. We've dusted off the weed to get some exercise indoors. Rock band is hilariously mid-2000s. I recommend joining in with live hangouts, podcasts, Zooms or whatever for outside social contact. And just video call people to check in. Everyone seems to be playing Animal Crossing on Nintendo Switch, but if that's not your thing, dust off your Second Life account or try to remember your Lambdamu password. I'm continuing to work on projects that started long before the current moment, and I have no plans to immediately change this. Art isn't journalism, but I am enjoying other people's musical reactions to the crisis. Hi everyone, this is Isabelle Harvey from <laughs> Togo. Uh, I'm in Lomé right now. Um, last year I started the Art and Game World Tour to celebrate my uh, 20 years of curatorship in the relationship of, uh, between art and video games. And I was in Asia, Latin America, and I was just starting my uh, World Tour in Africa. Uh, trying to focus on queer, feminist, female and decolonial practices when uh, Ghana decided to close its borders um, uh, by air first and then the, uh, by road. So I just had the time to pass uh, to Togo uh, by road and I decided to settle here um, to wait for um, <laughs> uh, the end of the pandemic, let's say. Um, first, because I don't have a house in France anymore, because I started my World Tour almost one year ago, so I don't have a house in France anymore. I think that the management of the crisis in France is really like a shame. 
So uh, I took the decision that was not easy to stay here, knowing that uh, Togo is a very, very tiny country. Uh, it has only two hospitals that are really, really bad hospitals. For the moment, there are only like, uh, if I can say, 60 cases with uh, 23 people healed. Um, everything is shut down from 8 p.m. to 6 a.m. People are respecting the social distancing, except in the houses where people live in communities, as you might know. Otherwise, what I did uh, since I've arrived in Togo is to create a garden uh, in the place where I am confined. I also set it up a uh, Wi-Fi connection in order to be able to go on my interviews online and try to pursue my world tour, but by doing only online interviews. I just sent an email to the uh, Minister of uh, Digital here in Togo and see if I will be able to interview her. Um, talk to you soon. Bye-bye.
That track was called Selenge by the Ethernet Orchestra, an internet-based musical ensemble that explores the uh, intercultural improvisation through networked musical performances on the web. Also, it includes Roger Mills, who used to be with Furtherfield, with a project that he used to collaborate with Furtherfield and Neil Jenkins, which was called Further Noise, but also it consisted of a large community of experimental noisemakers and musicians a little while back. Uh, so this episode of News From Where We Are features conversations with Cassie Thornton and KDM, whose projects were both to be featured in this year's summer exhibition and event series called Love Machines as part of Furtherfield's three-year citizen sci-fi programme, which crowdsources creative and technical visions of our community's public spaces together. Uh, The Love Machine season originally planned for Furtherfield Gallery in Frinsley Park focuses on nurturing, living and machine systems for mutual care and respect on Earth and beyond. It is developed with many different people in and around Furtherfield's venues in the park with a strong focus on physical presence in the urban green space and exchange with people and creatures. The pandemic has meant that we have had to change our approach. Uh, So in this first interview, I talk with Cassie Fulton about her artist's residency wrapped in a pandemic, her work at Furfield on her ongoing artistic research on the hologram collective health as a beautiful artwork. We discover how uh, COVID-19 is changing the artwork. Hello, Cassie. It's great to have you here on this program. You've been working on a project called uh, The Hologram, and this has been uh, happening at Furtherfield as part of your residency. Two days ago, you did an online workshop with Furtherfield, and it was called um, The Hologram. Is this the end or the beginning? A course for collective health. So that's an interesting title. So I suppose the first thing to ask is why use that title? And also, how did the workshop go? And what kind of things did you uh, do together on the workshop? Um, well, the title, Is This the End or Is This the Beginning, is something that uh, I think a lot of us have been asking for a long time as lots of different um, sort of support systems of all support systems and different kinds of like larger systems like the financial system or the way we distribute um, medical care as these systems have been sort of failing around us for a long time for a lot of people. Um I think the question has always been like, uh, is that the end or is that the beginning? Is it a, ch- a time to um, to kind of mourn or is it a time to get started? And I think it's, it's always sort of both. But uh, where some of us maybe only felt that feeling like things were crumbling um, some, like not, not everybody felt that was, that that was the truth all along. Like I think, um, people of color and people who kind of live um, outside of a sort of like white normativity 
um, a white heteronormativity have felt for a long time that a lot that the systems that are in place don't really serve them. And more and more of us have felt that through austerity or through uh, different kinds of racist systems that just don't work. I think now after the COVID virus has arrived, it's become more and more apparent that those systems um, have become really, really fragile and were already breaking. And now that those systems, like the medical systems all over the world have been tested, we can see that um, because of austerity, because of neoliberalism, because of the way that we've organized our societies around profit and not around the production of health and life, um, the systems that we rely on as people aren't there. And so it is an end and it's also a beginning. And there's a lot of really interesting things happening right now um, to figure out how to create um, new support structures that can withstand all the different sorts of endings that we're experiencing as a society. As we may, we, some people for the first time might be kind of realizing that they might not be able to sort of lean into um, the, the sort of government support that they thought was always going to be there. All kinds of things are changing. So the course is really about, it's about sort of creating systems of care and the distribution of labor for care in ways that can withstand really big changes. The original, the original sort of tagline was that this is a project that, oh no, no, it's I forgot the original tagline. The um, it's it's predicated on the idea that all of our crises crises are connected, um, and that uh, we need to kind of develop systems um, of care that will help us individually and as communities to sort of survive or outlast capitalism. And the workshop is so, so interesting. Um, 28 people joined from around the world. Some people are definitely from the further field community. And then so, and so that means that uh, there's a lot of people who identify as artists, but also as activists, um, organizers, healers. We didn't spend a lot of time because there are so many people hearing about people's sort of identities and occupations, but um, there were people from Singapore, and from Canada, definitely from the UK, from New York City, from San Francisco. So a really interesting community of people. And basically what we're doing is we're spending four weeks, we're meeting once a week, and we're sort of training ourselves, kind of thinking through what it would take to begin to practice the hologram, which is a really specific kind of social practice um, where we would develop sort of networks each, of, each person in the workshop would develop a sort of ne network of support for themselves that grows virally with the idea that this potential sort of social experiment could last long after the workshop. So it's sort of setting up the foundation for everybody to do work individually that will reach out into their community, but they're doing it alongside a lot of other people at the same time. So in this first workshop, I'm leading it with someone named Lita Wallace, a good friend, and also uh, kind of housing activist and a youth worker. And we are trying to figure out ways to get people to sort of think through and challenge some of their assumptions around trust um, and desire. So like, who have you been taught to trust versus who do you want to trust or who, how can you trust the people around you to provide the things that you need to sustain you? Um, that was a sort of central question of the first workshop, which we dealt with doing a mix of individual work and group work and just beginning to sort of introduce the hologram practice.
Uh, and so how many? So you is there uh, four workshops, and uh, the first ones involve twenty eight people. And how long does each workshop take? Each workshop is uh, two hours, and the goal is to have sustained participation for all four workshops. And most people that are in the workshop took an introductory workshop, <laughs> even to understand what they were getting into. So. Yep, it'll take, it's two hours over four weeks. Uh, there's a viewpoint that some people may have lost particular uh, skills and power that say our everyday life experience and the systems and the interfaces and the protocols that we're uh, engaged with every day have kind of, you know, kind of lessened our powers in such a way that these workshops are a way of reconnecting to them. Yeah, so much. And I hope it's possible um, because we're working online now using, uh, right now we're using Zoom, unfortunately. But um, one of the biggest ideas of the project comes from, I think, Sylvia Federici and interviews she's done and writing she's done um, that talks about really the way that when we switch towards building a life around wage labor and having to sort of make decisions based on what we need to do to live financially, not like what we can do or what we want to do based on what's actually needed around us. A lot of our powers have sort of gone to sleep or we've forgotten that we might have them. So in an interview, she at one point had talked about how like midwives and could work with women, with pregnant women to actually like turn a breech baby in the womb and now, like with all of the technology we have in medicine, that's still not necessarily always possible. So there's things, there's powers that humans have for healing themselves and healing each other that I think are um, absolutely there, but that it takes, it's like any muscle, like you have to kind of begin to use it before you remember like how to use it. And it's not perfect right away. And so I think that in this project, I really, I really hope that um, there's a sense that everyone has the capacity to be healed and everybody has the capacity to heal and that this is basically a laboratory for people to experiment and learn what they, actually, like what they can do when they put their mind and their energy to being together with other people who are all basically, like I think what we realize in doing a, a networked project like this is that a lot of people are um, maybe su suffering in similar ways and that a lot of the stuff that needs to change is stuff that we have to change collectively and not individually anyway. So our capacity to heal in a way has to do with cooperation and getting together with people to, to actually change the systems that are creating the harm in the first place. And we all, we all have the capacity to do that. The kind of concept or the structure of the hologram itself, how does it work? Mm-hmm. So um, it's quite, it sounds quite simple. And then I think in reality, it is a bit more challenging than this. But the basic model is that um, there's a person at the center of a group of three people. And the person at the center we refer to as the hologram. And then there's three people that do work to sort of look after her. And those people we refer to as the triangle. And those people are in charge of asking really good questions of the hologram 
And um, the model is based on the idea that you would get together with your triangle, as like the hologram would get together with the triangle maybe every season or so, but that's to be defined by the group. And that that would happen over a long period of time, that the group would decide, like, we're going to do this experiment for three months, six months, a year. But the wish is actually that, like, this project would be something that we would commit to for a really long time. So let's say 20 years or 10 years. And so um, um, in the triangle, you have three people and one person is sort of responsible for holding information about the physical experience of the hologram two versions of your answers i'm hopefully i'm asking one of them is the history of the project itself when you started it and how that came about but the other one is also i want to know how you informed uh, about the project when you went to greece well i learned about um so i my background is that i've been doing kind of debt resistance uh, work as an activist and as an artist, and sometimes those things overlap. But I've been doing that since, I guess, since maybe about 2010. And um, so I've been paying attention to the way that debt works in the world um, and how it kind of constructs our social reality. Um, and I'm not just interested in financial debts, but also sort of unpayable, like moral debts debts of colonialism, uh, debts to slavery in the U.S. So I, I've been looking at that for a long time. And so when the Greek debt crisis happened, I, all eyes were on Greece. And I was living in Oakland, California at the time. And it was so interesting because like, we, we watched in the news as Greece was really sort of focused on and, narrow, and like really narrowly for their financial crisis. And meanwhile, of course, like in the United States, we wouldn't acknowledge that we were in a crisis, but in my life, there was a ton of homelessness, like people living all over the streets in Oakland, um, huge wealth inequality. Me nor any of my friends had health care um, or access to affordable health care, um, even with Obamacare. And we, uh, none of us had stable jobs or stable places to live necessarily because the cost of rent was going up so fast. So we were all becoming kind of like, like, a different type of migrant, but we were all moving around a lot and uh, without a sort of like intentional community <laughs> that that exists on, on some sort of like stable property. So at the same time, watching what was happening in Greece was really interesting because they had the migrant crisis right at the same time as they were deemed bankrupt by the EU. And the response to that situation was so amazing because um, a bunch of activists, a bunch of anarchists organized a network of free social solidarity clinics all over Greece that were giving totally free medical care. All the doctors, the nurses, the therapists, dentists, masseuses, they're all there volunteering in squatted buildings. And at one point, I think there were 60 of these clinics and there's still many of them are still going. And some of them now are run by like charities and NGOs. And some of them are still run by activists using an assembly model. But I found these so interesting. So I began to sort of just pay attention to what was happening. And then I heard, like through gossip, really, that there was one particular clinic in Thessaloniki that was practicing something called the integrative model, which was basically one of a series of experiments led by a particular group called the Group for a Different Medicine. And they were experimenting with how to ruin hierarchy within uh, the medical, within medical treatment in general. So 
like what is possible like we're giving free care but also like how can we make it better care and so they did things like they stopped calling patients patients because in greek patient kind of means like the unwell but they started to call everyone that came into the clinic an incomer and then when you would come into this one particular clinic and this clinic ended up sort of changing spaces a few times so it went from the social solidarity clinic of Thessaloniki to an occupied factory called Viome and then inside of a thing called the workers clinic and then it moved back to the Thessaloniki social solidarity clinic where it now exists but these people were practicing this thing called the integrative model where when you went to the doctor you were seen by a medical uh, like a uh, md I'm, I'm sorry no a, a gp um, a doctor, a physical doctor, you were also seen by a therapist that was thinking about your emotion, emotional and mental well-being, and then a social worker who was asking you or thinking with you about your social life. And they would sit with you for a good amount of time, like 90 minutes, and really try to map out who you are, what do you eat, where do you work, who's your family, who, to whom do you owe debts, blah, blah, blah. And they were really trying to figure out what your sort of holistic sense of health was. And then they would end the end the meeting with a conversation with the incomer and say, you know, okay, what can we do together to make a plan that will allow you to sort of like be healthy this year? So like, you know, maybe it's talking through like changing jobs if the job seems like an unhealthy situation. Maybe it's talking through like the person's like social well-being, like maybe they're really lonely and they need to kind of like reach out more, join a social movement, get more involved in the clinic, or maybe their parent is dying or maybe they need a surgery. But the the three people would really troubleshoot with them to kind of design a plan that would help this person make it. And I think the conditions were tough at the time, but they really managed to figure out how to kind of get people what they needed without dealing with money. That seemed amazing and completely impossible from an American context where uh, we would never, it seemed impossible to have that kind of volunteerism from professionals who are used to being paid so much. When, where, where would we allow, be allowed to have a squatted building and who would trust this kind of system when we're so predicated on a private healthcare system and we've all been trained that we actually, good care means you pay a lot for it. So um, I got together a group of people. Um, I got them to come to Berkeley, California, um, to do a project together where we would think through how as sort of very precarious kind of social justice, like activists and also artists could cooperate and share resources and think through what it would mean um, to become what we were calling an intentional community in exile or people that were rooted together through a set of practices of sharing resources and mutual aid and support uh, without having the security that we thought we that we thought we would need or that we imagine that we would sometime have which would be access to kind of stable property and we um, just spent the time really trying to talk through like what all of our skills and resources were and how we could share them. And one of the things we ended up talking about was how to sort of take this thing, this integrative model from Greece and transform it into something that we could do ourselves without experts, without money, without space. And so uh, thinking through it together is how we ended up with this thing, which is I, at one point was just called the health project. And now I've taken and sort of transformed into the hologram and other people in the group have kind of taken it and transformed it in different ways to become different shapes, um, but all kind of in service 
of trying to do really good peer-to-peer support and to kind of create uh, ways for people to to sort of learn to take care of each other in a um, non-hierarchical way. So uh, the hologram model, uh, I think, it looks like a form of social care that is about adapting to to the crisis of capitalism uh, and also skills for the, well, maybe peer-to-peer skills uh, for the 21st century. That kind of relates to various other ideas that artists are kind of bringing into shape, bringing kind of making real uh, rather than just making objects and uh, which is fine you know and but, but in a sense though it, it what's so nice is the kind of conceptual edge and and the, the intuitive edge where the art goes beyond object into real life that's actually making real changes and not for and not for the kinds of lip service reasons but something that is a little bit deeper and longer term. Do you want to discuss a response mm-hmm. to that? Yeah, I mean, I think that the um, it's very funny when people ask me like what kind of art I do, um, whether I'm a painter or a sculptor. And I think like in a way, this is a kind of like social sculpture. But um, I think in some like the I go back and forth about um, when I like want to be called an artist and when I have to be called an artist. But I think that like basically, you know, in a different time or place, I might be able to be, have a different role in society. But for right now, being an artist means that like people give me a little bit of space to do something that doesn't necessarily make sense. Um, that doesn't make sense in the, the capitalist mentality that most of us have kind of had to assume in order to survive. So like, I think that, it actually functions so well. Um, and it's it's actually very important that it comes from an art space and not from a space that is kind of like, ha- that has a bunch of um, sort of cemented rules or structures embedded. Like it's not coming from psychotherapy um, and it's not coming necessarily even from something as specific as theater. And it's also not coming from, um, from a kind of like a, a desire for like, like better employment, like it doesn't actually have a sort of set of desires besides that it wants to become whatever form it needs to, to transform or, or make it more, make us more capable of like withstanding the harshness of, of reality and what it will hold. But I guess like the, the art part is super interesting because it means that um, people come to a meeting or a get together about the hologram and they're much more open to different kinds of methodologies and different kinds of practices. So I can like play Laurie Anderson really loud and we'll sing and dance to uh, only an expert. That makes as much sense as uh, a lecture or getting us into groups and practicing something. And I think that people just kind of, they have a different space that's open for them when they, they think of something as art. And it might mean that they can play more in terms of like, um, not only like, like what they do, but how things might fit into their life. Because right now I think it's really important to kind of bring art in because nothing makes sense. So I think it's important that we can kind of like use the chance to, I don't know, play a little bit with what our practices are and stuff. Where do you see this going in, say, I don't know, six months' time? Well, 
I mean, so we, we've had to move everything online that would have ne- probably been in person, especially during the residency. Um, and so in a weird way, it means that all the workshops and the kind of community building that would be happening in person is happening online. And I think it might mean that the connections that are happening in the workshops in a weird way might endure more. Um, so like right now we're doing this course and everybody's there's 28 people who are getting to know each other they've joined into groups of four and they're going to be with these four people for the whole duration of the course and i think if we were to do that in person in a weird way at the end of the workshop we would have to transform our relationships those groups of four would have to figure out, okay, so we're not getting together at the same time and the same place every week. Now we're going to have to transform these to something else so we can sustain it. But now it's going to already have been built in a way because it's mostly online through video chats and emails and phone calls that the the project might actually sustain itself much better and the relationships might sustain themselves much better. Um, so I think in six months, like, I'm wondering if it's possible that a couple of people, it doesn't have to be everybody, but a couple of people will have kind of developed uh, a bit of an attachment to the practice and um, will be able to sort of see what happens when people get to sort of start that practice, like, with, in parallel to other people and feel like they're part of something, even though they're doing this kind of like individual work. For me, it's a long-term project. And I think the the time in it, like the time spent doing it, the kind of stealing the time out of the sort of capitalist times, out of the waged workday, um, and using that time to spend like practicing uh, who we want to be and need to be in the kind of post-work, post-capitalist future, like, that time is so it's it's so important to kind of like learn that you have it and that you can use it and for me i just i my question has always been like what what would it mean if just a single person just little old me decided to just like throw all my weight into like this project for 10 years or 20 years and really like see where it goes um so i don't know like i i think it I think in a weird way, like it's a social form that I hope sort of at a certain point takes on its own life and kind of moves virally through communities and that like me and a, hopefully a group of people um, can keep it alive, but sort of let it be its own thing at a certain point and that it, it can like it is as transformative as I sort of have the feeling like it might be. Um, at, when it when it kind of grows to a large scale. So uh, if people want to know more about the project, how to, uh, or the model, how do they have? Uh, where do they go to online? There's a website that you can go to. It's thehologram.xyz, and it's kind of a. It's not fully finished, but it's there's enough information there that you can kind of feel and understand how it works. And then um, at the bottom of that website, you can sign up for the newsletter. And I think that's the best way if you want to get involved or get more access to like videos and stuff that we're making about the project, um, that will come out soon. And then um, soon there's going to be a publication coming out from Pluto that's about it, um, from a series called the Vagabond series, which is going to be so exciting. Um, it's going to be kind of like the a compendium with like lots of different people 
uh, well, lots of writing I've already done about it, and then some other contributors potentially adding to it too. So that'll come out um, probably this summer, actually. I think we should end here. And so thank you very much, Cassie. Uh, Yeah, thank you. She gets up from 
This track is by Alan Sondheim, Azure Carter and Luke Damrosh. It's from the album called Limit. It's called Harbinger. And I like uh, particularly how esoteric it sounds and dysfunctional. Okay, so now we have uh, Ferberfield's Ruth Catlow, who talks with KDM who is co-founder of New Design Congress and is based in Berlin. They have been collaborating on developing a LARP or live action role play called The Treaty of Finsbury Park. It was due to be played over three days at summer solstice this year, but has been postponed till next year. Here they talk about the coronavirus in Berlin, the New Design Congress and the Treaty of Finsbury Park. Press go. Pressed. Okay. So this is Ruth Catlow uh, talking to Cade DM. Hello, Cade. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Um, yes, <laughs> I'm okay. <laughs> um, I mean, how, it's yeah. a cliche, right? To be like, in these trying times, I'm okay. But <laughs> in these trying times, I am okay. I think my favorite answer to that question that I'm hearing at the moment is, I don't know. Like, That's... I think people don't know how they are because we don't really have anything to measure it against. That's but it. How, how are you faring in Berlin and how's life changed for you and the city at the moment? So Berlin and Germany itself at this point, and I hope this doesn't come back to haunt me, it seems to be dodging the worst of it. And there's a number of reasons floated as to why that's the case, but... Regardless, you know, the news is more the horrifying stuff that's happening outside of the country's borders rather than inside. So we had a cold end of um, winter. It was the coldest that had been in Germany, which kept a lot of people indoors. And now it's beginning to warm up. I just came back from walking my Sheba around the block. Um, and there are more people outside, but there, there seem to be you know, trying to stay within the guidelines of the lockdown. It's not, we don't seem to have the the, the, the the panic overall that other countries like the United States or the UK have had around um, people flouting the lockdowns. It's startling to me both how, how cohesive they are inside and how chaotic it seems outside our, the, 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 the state. And so... I, I have a theory about why it might be good in Germany and I think... Because at least in some dimension, German, Germany is a crypto-socialist country. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would agree with you. I mean, uh, I was really, really frightened that, um, that we were going to get hit really hard. And instead, what happened in Germany is the country just sleepily closed down and a whole bunch of people got tested. And the death rate is either um, a complete fabrication or an absolute miracle. And I think a big part of that, if it isn't... Um, fibs if it isn't a lie 
then the country's governance, I think, has the, a lot to to do with that. And it, and so, yeah, yeah, that's been a very surreal experience over the past couple of m- months. Yeah. Well, it's very heartening to hear. It's always really good to hear stories of uh, things working well and uh, a society actually having a way to deal with this properly. Um, I'm going to. I'm going to keep silent about the comparisons we might make with the UK because we have other things we want to talk about. (laughs) Uh, So we'll save that for another time. We're actually going to talk about a collaboration that we've been working on. But first, I think it'd be really nice uh, if you could introduce uh, the work you're doing as the founder of the New Design Congress. Uh, Yeah, if you could just tell us a little bit about what you're doing and and what your kind of mission is. Yeah, I can talk a bit about that. So on the 1st of January, I started a small research group slash nonprofit called the New Design Congress. It's an organization that takes a very particular look at how technology and infrastructure, digital infrastructure, um, should be viewed within um, societies. And this comes about from a lot of work that I'd been doing leading up to that. In 2014, I was um, prototyping Signal with Open Whisper Systems, uh, and I've been embedded as a designer and a researcher in, in sort of a political slash information security way for since 2014. I was also um, the chief design officer at a company called Spider Oak, which is like an encrypted Dropbox that um, Edward Snowden name dropped in a Guardian article and then grew quite large as a result of that. But the New Design Congress comes from this observation that I've had over the past five years that we see technology and digital infrastructure as causing problems in society. So you might look at something like um, the Facebook uh, disinformation um, interrogation of Mark Zuckerberg in front of Congress last year, and you might say, and and the, the framing of those questions that Congress asked Zuckerberg were specifically around Facebook's role in causing disinformation and causing polarization. The New Design Congress looks at situations like these, and instead of seeing technology as a cause, it instead understands it as an accelerant of for existing social, political, and environmental problems. So to use that same example, instead of um, questioning Mark Zuckerberg about the role of um, Facebook as a cause of disinformation, we would see this as um, how Facebook's policies combined with broader social issues, such as uh, a decreasing level of trust in public institutions, fragmentations, especially in American societies, but quite worldwide, especially in the face of um, rising inequality in in neoliberal societies. Um, And we see these as... um, technology and infrastructure as a as a as a as a tool that brings scale and intensity and speed to these problems and then what we see when they pop out the other side such as conspiracy theorists anti-vaxxers or or tech addiction things like this these are symptoms of broader issues that um if you see them, if, if you see technology as causing these problems, then you in fact only then respond to those symptoms. Whereas if you see it as a as a as a accelerant of these problems, then you start to explore some of these symptoms and start to identify them, starting where they become visible within within technology and within the interface. So, it strikes me that the the work that you're doing is to say that the problem starters social 
political economic issues and ecologies yeah and and ecologies and that technology is an amplifier of these things so if that's your position then what's your what's your kind of lever when we are thinking about how we might use technologies in projects or businesses or for societal infrastructure yeah i think so a lot of what i do the, the, the initial work that we've done at New Design Congress specifically looks at the interface in various applications of the interface, and it uses um, interface language and the kind of lexicon that has developed around digital tools um, and repurposes those in order to start cultivating systems literacy in people not just who build technologies and, and conceptualize them, but also people who are affected by them too. Because ultimately the expertise that we need in order to solve these problems comes from a mixture of, of, of a particular configuration that I think is quite powerful. Firstly, you need the component where we reframe the issues as being um, not as being caused by technologies, but rather as an accelerant of these existing issues. And then when you combine that with a, with a promotion of systems literacy and you bring uh, systems theory and political theory to people who, uh, who have that expertise but lack the language and the skill set in order to, to, to start responding at a deeper level, um, you then start to, have, to cultivate these, uh, these interactions that can then happen so a good example of this would be um, looking at the roles of communities who use mobile phones, smartphones, for example, um, and how there's a disconnect between how we design smartphones and we kind of follow individuals. Um, you might build user personas. You might use um, uh, you might design a mobile operating system around a set of actions that you want people to take. But very rarely will people actually look at things like the relationships between people within that system um, or the people who exist outside the system who observe it when you're designing these things. And at the same time, when we're doing user interviews and user research in these thinking specifically about these practical tools that are used every day in, in infrastructure design, when you're interviewing individuals, what you're getting is only a very narrow perspective of what they actually see. And so there's a number of blind spots along this entire system in which the core deeper problems you have um, and the lack of um, broader systems theory, the lack of the ability to step back from the immediate problems. These are these are the kinds of issues that, that help to accelerate or help to contribute to, to the situation that we're in now. So the New Design Congress sees th- uh, things like the work of Donella Mellows, uh, sorry, Donella Meadows, and the team who wrote um, The Limits to Growth, for example, the environmentalists and systems theorists, uh, th- these kinds of people who, who did in the 20th century design and, and articulate very clearly these methodologies that you could use in order to start understanding, even without any deep expertise, ways in which you could model systems of, of complexity or systems of infrastructure and then start to derive both um, potential outcomes and unintended consequences, but also measure ways in which you can pragmatically make a difference within existing built infrastructure, digital infrastructure. And so really, yeah, the, the New Design Congress has those two components to it. The first is around the like redefining the problem. And then the second is helping to cultivate these solutions. We don't use frameworks in particular. We don't believe in, in a one-size-fits-all framework, but instead we want to rely on some of these um 
existing concepts around systems theory and systems literacy and combine them with individual expertise in order for people to, to start um, relying on their own um, knowledge, both as either experts or uh, understanding the communities that they represent. Brilliant. Okay, so this is a really good segue. Um, so I think I'm going to just talk a little bit about the live action role play that you and I have been working together on for the last, uh, well, probably coming up to a year now. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, Our plan had to be to run this at Solstice this summer, but we've been thwarted by uh, COVID-19. But the segue is this idea of thinking about uh, interfaces in a more expanded way. And so basically you and I wandered through Finsbury Park getting like really interested in the park itself as a interface through which we could understand the politics of what was happening ecologically what was happening for all the different users of the park and their inputs and then the effects on the park environment and the users of the park depending on how we regarded the the, the kind of surface of the park as right, an interface. Yeah. And we wanted to take the site of the park as a LARP. For the listeners, people who don't know, LARP stands for Live Action Role Play. And this is a, basically a game of make-believe with many characters in which people come together to build a fictional reality. So a scenario is set and people playing a different character will improvise into that scenario And it's a world-building technique. And the kind of LARP that I have been working with for the last two or three years um, draws on the Nordic LARP tradition, which is essentially... So you have at one end, you have the kind of reenactment traditions and you have the kind of historic reenactment traditions. But the Nordic LARPs are more... They're more like immersive, participatory performance. Uh, They can go very strange, which we like. Uh, And LARPs traditionally can last. They, I mean, you could theoretically have a. You could LARP your whole life. Some people do, and some people do, and we might not know that they're doing it. And the the kind of shortest LARPs that I have been running are around about two hours. But the one we were planning was three hours mm. around the summer solstice. Three days, three days around the summer solstice. The three days, yes. sorry, around the summer solstice. Yeah. Uh, it was to be called. It will be called the Treaty of Finsbury. You're Park. speaking as though it's in, and it was um, the like that it's over, but it's really just delayed. I'm, I'm, I, yeah, I have to confess to a kind of sense of enormous grief yes, that it isn't happening because I got, we got very excited. Yeah. It's going to happen next summer instead. Yes. So the Treaty of Finsbury Park will be a game uh, of many characters played by people who are both visiting artists and park envoys, so people who have a strong, long-standing connection with the park, and. Um, Basically, we are going to play out the negotiation and the signing of a treaty for multi-species justice and revolution in an urban green space. This is the kind of central premise. Um, Is there anything else you'd like to add into that just at the absolute top level, like so that 
people will be able to picture something in their minds as we talk about the concept and the kind of con- context behind Yeah, this. so the I think just to kind of try to keep it at surface level, because there are a number of um, competing ideas that came together in order to make this a reality, is that it, it was answering a number of questions uh, all at once. Or, or sort of, no, that's the wrong way of looking at it. It was the, the, the Treaty of Finsbury Park has a number of very distinct themes as part of it. It looks at the role, as you said earlier, Ruth, of networks and interfaces being intertwined and how we can measure and define uh, green spaces and ecologies as, as networks and vice versa. And also that, you know, humans are a monolinguist society. We look, we demand that our environments fit our understanding of the world and so the LARP here was an idea of which we could maybe try to start to transcend the monolinguist lack of imagination within uh, human societies. And the idea here is like what happens if, if you start to consider trying to, um, to, to reach other species, be it flora or fauna or you know, insects or anything. How, what, what does this look like when you start to try to engage on their level rather than demanding that we do it on our level. It's a bit conceptual, but I think the other part too that's really interesting, the last of it is like looking at the role of rituals as a form of change and this idea of how the only way we're going to manage to make major conciliatory change around uh, the ecological crisis is to engage with and steal, if you like, the the tools that states have used um, intergenerationally across history in order to make massive society-wide changing or planetary-wide um, changing um, uh, decisions between each other. So this idea of, of repurposing the tools of power and using them in this, in this LARP context in order to provide like a very powerful aesthetic that we can use to sort of push this idea of, of, this, uh, of this treaty, if you like. And why do, in your view, why is kind of live action role play a good format to achieve this lasting change? And kind of how does it do it for the, in particular, with the Treaty of Finsbury Park as we've To be really it? honest with you, I'm really sick of um, writing stuff. I'm really sick of people on the left talking and writing. But I think what we need to do, especially um, trying to, to write about ideal futures and utopias and dystopias we seem to be able to see dystopias as around the corner and utopias as something that needs a blank space between like so we we see our utopias as distant um goals and that we have this space between now and the utopian society that's completely blank and i think what the LARP does is it takes some of these ideas around what would a short-term solution be? The, the Treaty of Finsbury Park is 2025. So this is like this fictional year in which this, this treaty takes place. And the idea here is to say, well, if we want a utopian society that's based on the values of the left, how do we get there? Not just like 20 to 50 years in the future, but like five, five years from now. What does that look like? And I think that what LARP offers you is the, as you said before, the ability to world build and actually engage and wear a particular scenario, a set of values and an aesthetic and an environment 
for a brief period of time in a way that allows you to step outside of you, you yourself as a person and inhabit something else and someone else within that moment. And by shedding a lot of your own particular ego and your, your id, you can then move to exploring these ideas in a much more visceral and sensory way. And I think that's much more important um, than just particularly writing or exhibiting in galleries and things like that at this point in time. Yes, yes. And the other thing that I think makes it really powerful and that I love about it as an art form is that it isn't just that you're wearing a different character. It's that you're in, I mean, in the case of the one that we're designing here, it's that you're in a place that actually exists and that you care for, but you're imagining it in a near future, in a scenario that you would like to happen and you are make you're doing this make believe with the other people who have the same vested interest in that place or maybe a different one and then you have to negotiate right. it so just like it's not an exhibition or a book that you make and then you hope people come along and enjoy it you're basically having to do the no- negotiation about what this new performed reality will be on the fly and experience all the difficulties, tensions, objections and pleasures of that kind of live Precisely, negotiation. Yes. And and you can't leave unchanged from that well, I think, experience. I think that for a lot of people, experiential thing. I mean, you see this... Um, this is what the Instagram era that has just passed us was all about. These ideas of com- uh, commoditizing, uh, commercializing uh, the the experience, right? And this idea of um, even theatrically producing curated material online about, you know, the, the lazy take on, on Instagram is this idea of people putting their best curated life forward. Or uh, in extreme cases, you saw examples of... Um, uh, people who set up fake airplanes with business class seats so that you could pretend that you were in business class and I think and then post that online and I think like that's an <laughs> absurd example of something that I think is really important which is that ultimately the experience and and lived experience informs politics more than anything else I think what into like I think what writing and and um, uh, a more theoretical approach does is it helps bring language to the experience that you may have or may have witnessed someone else have. But ultimately, given how far we've come down this particular um, social structure, if we are to dismantle it in a meaningful sense that is nonviolent and um, truly uh, inclusive, not just of humanity, but um, other species on the planet that we share, um, that is something that requires a great degree of experience um even if it's a, a even if it's a live action role play and i think that that is why world building is really important i think just to finish that note you saw this a lot in the 20th century the the hope hopeful future that was driven by united uh, american exceptionalism this idea that you could see yourself um being a jetson where you had a, a flying car and you had this particular layout of a society these were like experiential, even if they were, the, 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 even within fiction, um, within the, the kind of imaginations that were being built up at the time, we've lost that for, for a variety of reasons. And I think 
some of that comes from the acceleration of, of high fidelity entertainment. Some of it comes from the political realities that we find ourselves in today. Um, but I also think some of it is that as time progresses and things have um, accelerated in terms of inequality and um, social and uh, environmental problems have accelerated, these become very, it becomes very crushing to try to think beyond the immediate future. And so these kinds of tools, I think, when you combine them in specific ways, can help you kind of leave that to one side for a minute. Not to discard them, because obviously if you discard them outright, you end up in a situation in which um, you can't get to where you want to go with this new world. But by setting them aside a little bit and entering this negotiated space with this particular set of themes, what you end up with is a very powerful um, way of immersing yourself in a world that you might want to live in in the future, in the very near future. And I think that is really, really important right now. Fantastic. I think we're going to leave it there. <laughs> Thank you very much. For the listeners, on the podcast page, you will see a download for the concept document yes. that sits around um, the Treaty of Finsbury Park. Yes. And this does it gives everyone an opportunity to take a slightly deeper dive into some of the themes that we've just discussed. Yes, absolutely. Um, I'd be really interested in people's thoughts on it too. We were, we were originally going to publish it a little bit later as part of this whole thing, but now that it's primarily text for the time being, it's very interesting to see how people respond to it, especially in this current moment of, um, of very weird social dynamics. Excellent. So we have an open invitation here to, for people to tell us what they make of it and uh, give us their ideas. Yes, please. Thank you.
This track was by Smartest Kid on Earth and it's called Edit. It was created in 2005 and part of a publication by Further Noise called Explorations in Sounds Selection 1. Next we have Jaya Clara Brecker, researcher of power politics and economics in distributed systems, uh, who listens to birds before reflecting on the current state of play in crypto and blockchain culture and the impact of COVID-19. Hello from Margate. Um, I came down here about three weeks ago to visit my brother, and this has now become my lockdown hideout, and I'm calling from the beach. I'm looking at the water right now. Um, I figured everyone could use a bit of sea breeze, breathe in some of that sea air, as Mikachu and the shapes um, would say, and a little bit of bird sound. So I've uh, now come back inside because the wind was a little bit too intense down by the water. Um, so I have been having some amazing conversations in the past few weeks. Um, it feels like suddenly people are aware of each other um, in a new way, uh, both near and far, um, somehow outside of and beyond our normal roles and places in uh, the machine of society. Probably like many of you, I had a day some weeks back um, of suddenly feeling quite afraid. And it made me think a little bit about where that fear was coming from. And it was a kind of fear of uh, intense kind of vulnerability. And I think the virus somehow has made us um, suddenly and immediately aware of how dependent we are on very impersonal systems, things like global supply chains of food and health equipment. And that we're somehow, rather than being like free individuals that are just roaming the world, um, we've actually been dependent on others all along, but it was just masked by systems put in place to mediate those dependencies. So money systems, supplies, chain systems, information systems. And it feels like with the virus, everyone suddenly has stopped and we're looking around and we're seeing the neighbor, we're seeing the street, we're seeing the shop in a new light. And somehow this fear of being at mercy of impersonal global systems, you know, systems that are kind of stretching, squeaking, reaping at the seams right now, means that at least I am, and it feels like a lot of other people are putting out new kinds of feelers towards like more immediate and personal connections. You know, like things like, can I help the neighbor? Can they help me? Um, who is most vulnerable nearby, what can I do for them, Uh, what would I need if things get really bad, who can I call, Um, a kind of of reaching out for different kinds of connections with people that are are near. Um, And I mean near not just geographically, but also, you know, to a large extent, virtually, you know, a lot of people have been um, helping each other out by video calls, making connections and so on. And like I said, I've been having some great conversations. And um, I thought I might talk about one of them here because it's given me quite a different perspective on cryptography. Um, So to move on to something that isn't explicitly virus related, because I think we probably also have a little bit of virus fatigue, all of us, I thought I'd talk a bit about um, the kind of work that I'm doing right now. So for those of you who know me, I've done a lot of work on the kinds of political economies and politics of the cryptocurrency blockchain space. 
Um, and I am kind of now working a little bit more on cryptography full stop. And I had a conversation with an artist who's doing, who would like to do a piece of artwork on blockchain, an artist called Lawrence Abu Hamdan. And Abu Hamdan wanted some advice on how he might be able to use blockchain in a project that he's working on at the moment about reincarnation. I am not going to reveal anything more about that, but it's a pretty exciting project. Um, so I'm looking forward to that happening and coming out in over the next couple of years. But right now I'm working on a paper that is um, where I'm trying to describe what I call cryptographic geographies. And my main argument is that cryptography is becoming a major tool in shaping the political and relational geographies of virtual algorithmic and code spaces. And to try to explain a little bit about how that happens and why it matters. Um, so as part of this, I'm writing and thinking and reading and rewriting and rethinking what is particular about cryptography? What is it that cryptography can do? How is it that it affects our societies? How is it that it affects space? How is it that it affects political geography, geopolitics, and so on? Um, so I want to read out something that um, I wrote in a book with James Bridle and Ben Vickers about the Bitcoin white paper last year. And this is specifically about cryptography in the context of uh, Bitcoin and blockchain. Um, so... I'll start with uh, just the kind of introduction of the piece. There is nothing like the pleasure of a perfect mental model, a puzzle solved. For the technically minded, the Bitcoin white paper presents a stunningly elegant solution to a set of hugely complex problems. The unusual combination of decentralized network architecture, cryptography, and economic incentives promises a system that can run independently and can also be secure, economically viable, and beyond the reach of anyone seeking to control or shut it down. This vision is what makes so many people's eyes shine with excited fervor when recounting their first reading of this paper. Implied in this technical architecture is a proposal for, peer, for a peer-to-peer -peer money system that would remove the need for authorities and thereby circumvent banks, governments, and legal systems. This particular formula and abstract template through blockchain has since been expanded from electronic payments to any type of data and computation. A Turing-complete machine for arranging, registering, and enforcing shared truths about events. The unusual simplicity of the solution has become so convincing that the scandals, contradictions, manipulation, and messiness of the actual implementations are often overlooked as irrelevant noise from a messy and indeterminate world. The white paper, in contrast, projects a promise of clean determinacy, a functional truth founded on mathematically arranged decentralization. So I wrote that um, about a year ago now, and quite a lot has changed since then. My focus at that time was very much about the deterministic qualities of crypto cryptographic proofs and of blockchain. Um, and I was looking very much at how these deterministic qualities, you know, the fact that we can know something with mathematical certainty was beginning to make out a kind of rather rigid approach to cryptography, a kind of fundamentalist um, understanding of cryptographic proofs as like, uh, the real truth, the only kind of real truth that we can rely on um, in the world. So back to my conversation with the artist, Abu Hamdan is part of the Druze sect, which is a minority esoteric sect that, sect that blends Islam with other major philosophical um, strands and, and philosophies. Um, Abu Hamdan explained to me that there are some interesting cryptographic practices amongst the Druze. 
For example, their holy book is not held by any single household. Rather, the book exists in pieces spread out across several houses. And this is just one of many practices that deliberately seek to kind of conceal things amongst um, amongst the Druze. Now, just a disclaimer, I haven't done a whole lot of background research into this, so apologies to any Druze people that are listening for any mistakes I am making while I kind of retell this conversation. But in any case, I asked Habu Hamdan to tell me more about this practice of concealing in the context of esoteric and spiritual practices. And it's given me a kind of different Different, very different perspective on cryptography um, than this kind of like more deterministic um, approach to cryptographic proofs and information security. Um, and it's given me a kind of a different perspective that's like, I think, especially um, valuable for an understanding of privacy. Um, so just to try and explain that a little bit uh, through the example of calligraphy and the Quran. Abu Hamdan explained to me that Islamic calligraphy deliberately seeks to conceal what is written. So the word is considered to be false in its attempt to represent something. So it kind of, you know, the word pretends to be that thing. It just pretends it can describe that thing, but it, it doesn't really. It's just a word. It's a false representation of something that is otherwise real. And so this kind of effort to conceal the word and instead kind of give it a form that immediately expresses something in its shape or in its sound is a kind of way to overcome that, that falsity of the word. Um, not by kind of making a more accurate representation of something, but by reducing the attempt to represent in the first place and instead allowing the word through the kind of shape of calligraphy to become something that's true in itself, a real shape, a sound that kind of uh, might help towards the realization of a meaning um, without seeking to represent it falsely or claim to, to kind of represent it. Um, and I kind of understand that a little bit along the lines of the difference between knowing and realizing or reading and realizing where, to my mind, you know, realization is a form of knowledge that goes much deeper than just kind of uh, an uh, interpretation of the world. It's a kind of, it reshapes your, your mind, it re reshapes your very being. And so we, here we have some kind of very sophisticated practices where layer up upon layer of concealing is used as a technique to give birth to realization and to kind of allow for a different kind of truth to emerge. So it's a form of knowledge practice that um, is kind of very much the opposite of Western science, where the aim is uh, towards more precise definitions and descriptions that can be, you know, accurately reproduced. Um, or I, th I think another way to think about it could be like high definition television or, you know, more real virtual realities and a kind of like headlong pursuit to connect to kind of what is really real in the world. That's not like a value statement on my side at all. Um, I'm just very curious about these very different practices of trying to achieve some form of truth. Um, where, you know, the kind of cryptographic practice that Abu Hamdan was telling me about is very different from the kinds of attempts at establishing deterministic truth statements through cryptographic proofs. And it's also very different from the kinds of um, security, information security perspectives on using cryptography as a means of concealing, um, where I guess here it's, you know, concealing is more about a careful construction of a set of architectures or mazes that um, allows for a, a different kind of truth to emerge. 
Um, and I've not written this part of my paper on cryptographic geographies yet. So this is these are just like very early ideas. But I suspect that this form of concealing can tell us something much deeper about why privacy is so important going forward in the designs of global information systems. Not only because it protects people from potentially malicious authorities, which is the angle that is most readily drawn on um, in, in most writing on, on privacy and information systems, but also because keeping certain things private, drawing you know, drawing up and carefully laying out a kind of maze that someone would need to walk through in order to enter that private space is a kind of transformative process in itself that creates different, really qualitatively different kinds of bonds, truths, and connections. Um, and so those are just some of the things that I'm thinking about, chatting about, and writing about here in my little Margate hideout during the uh, during the COVID-19 lockdown in the UK. And I will wrap up with reading a few of the last sentences from the white paper book. When I first read the Bitcoin white paper, I, like so many others, found it beautiful. A seemingly perfectly balanced combination of basic cryptography, simple economics, and a decentralized network architecture. Decentralization would take care of authority and power, economic incentives would solve security and behavioral problems, and cryptography would secure the integrity of the system, its records, and its use. A curious double move happens when encountering such a convincing and elegant diagram. It begins to exist in our minds as an objective necessity, but that at the same time it doesn't exist in reality quite so perfectly as it should, and we keep correcting, building, maintaining, and reorganizing the world around it to try and let it exist as it is so elegant and real in our minds. Here I don't mean that we correct for functionality, which is an honorable endeavor. What I mean rather is that we correct our understanding of the world so that it matches the model better. This is the seed of the takfiri the fundamentalist. This is the definite determinacy so desperately sought after. The mind sees and understands the perfect diagram. It becomes a way to make sense of and order the world, a way to determine relationships, organize and enforce their terms and conditions once and for all. How easy it is then to dismiss everything else that is or might be. To systems tax fee of all kinds, a warning. It is a deadly mistake to see a system and its beautiful diagram as more real, objective and pure than anything else. Initially, perhaps, it is deadly for all those who will suffer from its slow violence, but later on, it is deadly for those who continue to perpetuate it and who will therefore need to be stopped in order for the rest of us to breathe. Do not make the same mistake as market fundamentalists, colonialists, fascists, and all the others who seek to fix the world in their image. Those of us with two names will eventually destroy you. So I wrote that at a very different time when there really was this unbearable belief in the need for the mediation of these abstract systems, information systems and economic systems in order to govern ourselves, where now trust and awareness has, seems to have kind of returned to ourselves and each other. And we're looking around to see what we can do here and now to help each other out. Um, those are my thoughts over and out from Margate and much love and respect to anyone who's listening.
That was Out Those Monkeys with The Puppy Gets It. And now we have Regine Debatti of the Redoubtable Art and Tech blog, We Make Money Not Art. She reviews Behind, a performance by Danny Ploger, celebrating uh, internet and anal things at V2 Lab for the Unstable Media Lab. Behind. Celebrating the Internet of Anal Things. Have you ever wondered what some of the most iconic works of media art would be like if they were created using today's technology, science, knowledge, and critical perspective on the world? Well, that's exactly the question that V2, Lab for the Unstable Media in Rotterdam, and Organization Info Art are asking. They have challenged artists to select one of the works realized at V2 over the course of its 40-year-old history and to reimagine, re-engineer and reenact it today. The first experiment in the series is by Danny Pluger. The artist and cultural critic decided to revisit Stellar's performance Amplified Body. Now, the Amplified Body took place in 1994 and explored the relationships between humans, machines, and the surrounding space, but ultimately also the role and the functioning of the body. During his performance, uh, Stellar controlled robots, cameras, and other instruments by tensing and then releasing his muscles. Pluger's 2020 version of the Amplified Body does Well, exactly that, except that the only muscle needed to control other instruments is the sphincter. Pluger describes his work as being a revolutionary anal electrode-powered interface system. And during Art Rotterdam in early February this year, Pluger launched his anal interface system with a live product demonstration of the prototype, a champagne reception and a speech during which the investor, yes, the investors, presented their vision for a global commercial product launch. Pluger's performance was a huge success with the public. He showed us how the behind interface could track the contraction patterns of his anal sphincter muscle and interact with the robot that projected video and sound footage of his anal canal and intestines onto the walls of the V2 gallery in Rotterdam. Even the language used to demonstrate and sell us the device Use the typical startup rhetoric. So here is an extract. Behind offers a unique Internet of Things solution to fully integrate your sphincter muscle in everyday living. The revolutionary anal electrode powered interface system replaces conventional hand and voice based device interaction and enables advanced digital control rooted in the interiors of your body. 
celebrating the abject and the grotesque behind facilitates simple plug-and-play access to a holistic body experience in the age of networked society. And that's the end of uh, the extract. To create his revolutionary device, uh, Pluger used a multimedia robot for the home, an anal electrode with EMG sensor for the domestic treatment of fecal incontinence and other off-the-shelf bits and pieces of electronics. Since these devices are mostly targeting the aging body, their use seems to allude, ironically, to Stellar's belief that the human body is obsolete. Stellar, by the way, also remarked that we have to design bodies to match our machines. Well, uh, the discourse around body and technology is nowadays much tamer. Our machines are supposed to answer the need and the dynamics of our body to monitor and enhance its performances. The result is that today's technology, the ones that interact directly with the body, they're still seducing us, but they have taken a far more sinister and a decidedly less science fiction-y turn. Yes, they're sleek, but they also turn each of us into sets of data. They are unobtrusive, but they will end up on a toxic dumb side one day. They are elegant, but they can engage with aspects of the human experience that we might find abject and even unsightly. So behind its farcical appearance, the behind device demonstrates all the tensions inherent to an internet of things that inhabits the body without being noticed. It looks absurd, but then again, it might not be more absurd than half of the tech products that are supposed to enliven and power and improve our lives. This segment is an extract from Stuart Holmes' CD published in 1988. Uh, it features all kinds of things. The, the CD is called Cyber Sadism Live includes readings and stand-up routines. Uh, this particular uh, track is called Stuart Home and Jimmy Corty Sonic Chat, recorded at the Lantern Inn, Ashburton, 29th to 7th, 96. I wanted to kind of ask with the inter interesting kind of frequency weapons, were you interested in all the kind of, you know, the Vernie stuff, this retirement couple who claim they've been... One of them's died now. They claim that their retirement home was bombarded with sonic MOD weapons in the last few years. Wait, is, is this microwave? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know some people who used to hang around at Green and Common, and they all reckon that they were zapped. Yeah. Basic. But I mean, no, I, I was calling him Pasty. No, I was calling him Pasty. Which, you know, four point, hello, Pasty. I hear him, my name's Pasty. I thought that was. <laughs> <laughs> you know, hey, this is Stuart Holmes. Hi. 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 Right, yeah, no, I've been reading all about you. Money grinding assistant. Yeah, reading about you in the workshop for nonlinear architecture newsletter and in Bill and Mark's novel. Yeah, that one. 
Yeah, there's some great descriptions you can play. Yeah, yeah. It's quite yeah. a nice play, though, really. Really? <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't let really you walk behind you. Yeah, so you were saying you knew a bit about the Michael Well, no, we don't, we, don't, yeah, we don't really know anything at the moment about, <laughs> about any research that's been done into some weapons. Right. You know, it's just a blank, the whole thing. It's just some weapon thing. We don't even just know just making the whole thing up. Right, so you you don't know anything about the kind of conspiracy research stuff that's in no. magazines like Lobster? No. I mean, because your weapons are, according to the press release, are like older 60s type stuff rather than this microwave. No, well, I made all that up. You just made it up? Yeah. So it's just a van, a disco van. Van, right, right. Some speakers in it. Right, yeah, brilliant. No more than that. And this media hysteria is blown up. Yeah. Well, it's, it's quite good. I mean, I'm quite into it. Yeah. You know, the way coward killing, sonic weapon wielding, you know, evil people. It's great. I don't mind that. Yeah. <laughs> so that was. It was just an accident. Yeah. Yeah, because I saw you do the thing on the, the South Bank and it just looked like a load of. I mean, yeah. Like it's just a, a load of racket. Yeah, a serious racket. I mean, it didn't yeah. strike me as being. Yeah. It's not dangerous or no. you know, threatening in any way at all. Like it's not even that loud, you know. Yeah, well, that's what I thought. Yeah. Actually. Well, I mean, it's true that the cows you know, are disturbed by noise, but. Right, right. So there's no kind of interest in the series. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, I am, yeah, I am you interested, are interested in it, yeah. yeah. I and mean, we have got some pretty amazing equipment yeah. that you know, potentially could do some quite interesting things. Right. But it's, it's really early days yet, you know. Right, so you're just experimenting with it. Yeah,
so this is by Antonio Roberts and it is a algo rave called Cafe Otto. Also, it's a shortened version of the original, which is about 22 minutes long. But I really wanted to play some of it, so you've heard some of it. Corona. Franklin turns hard and downshifts and night seems a colorless gelatin. The old myth of night is sort of collective poison gas that, quote, fell after losing the loft of the sun's heat. He is alone on the road as it is late and remote, and that thing is happening everywhere. Stores have empty shelves amongst the items for sale, gashes and wounds of open space where packaging should be, bone of metal dividers laid pale and bare. The thing is in the air. It travels. The fear precedes it. It resides in eyes, in distance, and the missing toilet paper like the world will cease to flush, like the rolls are spun fine gold, manna and plastic wrapped from heaven. He shifts again now, the car lurching with him, around him, forward, ever forward. He loved looking out his dorm window in college, the lights and colors of all hours, a protective, naive gauze of protection, almost to touch, to taste, to smell. The third floor room was bare wood furniture, simple closets. The bed, he joked, could have been made of old stale bread and bricks, but it was home, shelter, and the world was cut clean away by the campus, by the view. As a boy, he would watch the rains against the window by his bed. The world became washed watercolor, lights as snakes, gently sliding down in unison, grouped languid against the glass. He wondered at night if maybe, just maybe, there was more to this. Franklin as a teen sat in that dorm and wondered one night if there were infinite ones, infinite slight shifts of color, smell, brush, and dirt. His room might have been on other floors, might be with a hymn with a different major, a different memory of Reigns as a kid, a hymn almost the same even but a hair, a scar, a single moment as wound in time. The walls for a moment seemed impermanent, the ceiling flaccid and permeable. He hits the gas harder, a kick into the ether, as though the air could have a skin like the feel at night of hot summer, diving into cold water, something breaking, opening. The car grunts, the tires grab, and night be damned, unknown be damned, uncertain too. Franklin for a second wishes the car could travel until all blurred into one, a slop of colors and formlessness. He slows and turns again, the stars above a great shimmering nothing, the thing in the air for this moment just another abstraction at bay, like death and rain and the amorphous nature of things being and the faith one must dumbly have that things simply are. He rages into the corner and enters everything in this moment. Thank you, Jeremy Hyatt, for that apt poem, Corona. And also, I would like to thank Outsos Monkeys for... Uh, for their tunes, uh, especially for the beginning and the end of this podcast. I would also like to thank all the people that submitted their files for this podcast. And also, I could not fit all the files onto this podcast, so they also will be kind of pushed forward to the next programme. Don't forget, we plan to post a new episode of News From Where We Are on the second Friday of every month. This is a conversation of many voices from the ground. So please tell us about collaborative imaginative field work going on where you are. We are especially interested in the work by artists, techies and activists that informs how we can organise, imagine and build solidarity, good health and post-capitalist realities. If you have suggestions of work or would like to share your own short pieces, contact me, Mark Garrett, including your name, where you are, 
and your news on social media at Furtherfield. Thank you. Thank you.